again, my point, my the purpose of my Tashrit talk is not so much to answer every little specific question, although I'm happy to, to answer that if you have a specific question, but that you should understand the system of Kashris. Because I think once you understand the system, you'll have a lot of, uh, you'll have a lot of less anxiety when you're in a non-kosher environment because you'll kind of know what the problems are, you'll know the questions to ask, and maybe you'll even know when you don't have to ask a question uh, right? So it's often the case that if you look at halacha, not just as a bunch of a million little rules or separate rules, but you look at it as subsumed under some general principles, you can feel much more secure that you're doing the right thing. Uh, but again, this doesn't replace having a rabbi or talking to a rabbi. Obviously, you do have to talk to somebody who's very familiar with the halachas, but at least you'll understand the system. So last week went through a lot of different uh, rules of kashras. Now we're going to deal with uh, the unique law of kashras, which is meat and milk. Right? This is probably, you know, uh, the one thing that may separate uh, the orthodox, you know, from the less orthodox. Even a non-orthodox person will often not eat pig or shellfish, although many, many do, but meat and milk is really a big one. So let's start with the basics. Uh, where does the Torah say you're not allowed to eat meat and milk? Actually, it doesn't. It doesn't. There's a verse that says, Lo sevashel gidi b'chalev imo. That literally means do not cook a goat in the milk of its mother. Now, if you took it hyper, hyper, hyper literally, this would refer to a very specific thing. I don't take an animal and cook it in its mother's milk. But if I cook it in some other mother's milk, that would be okay, you would think, right? But Chazal understands that uh, this is a more general rule. Don't cook the meat of a goat, and a goat is lapdafka a goat. A goat includes really any milk-producing animal. So it includes sheep, it includes cows, right? Don't cook meat in milk. Now, this Pusuk appears three times. There are three times in the Torah where the Torah says exactly these words, do not cook a goat in the milk of its mother. Now the question is, the Torah doesn't repeat words. Why would the Torah say the same Pasuk three times? So as part of the oral tradition, Chazal or Makabel, that each Pasuk is adding something new. There are three prohibitions about meat and milk. Prohibition one is cooking meat and milk. Some people aren't aware of this. Meaning, let's imagine, you know, you're a cook in a non-kosher restaurant. It's not, it's not a great job to have, try not to have it. But, you know, you're cooking treif. And you're pouring milk in a meat sauce. You're not eating it. But it's usher from the Torah to cook it. You're not allowed to cook meat and milk even if you're not going to eat it. That's Isser number one. Isser number two, you're not allowed to eat meat that was cooked in milk. So there's an Isser of Bishel. Bishel is cooking. There is an Isser of Achila, an Isser of eating. And third, an Isser Hana'a. Hana'a is getting benefit from it even if you don't eat it. So what would be an example? Feeding it to your animal as pet food. Now, can I... F oh, well, okay, can, well let, let, let me finish up first. Okay, so that's one example. You're not allowed to feed it to your animal. A second example is you're not allowed to sell it for money because you're getting benefit. Now, it's important to understand the following. The idea that this is something that not only are you not allowed to eat, but you're not allowed to even get benefit from, is not typically the law of kashras. Let's take ham. Let's take a ham. Let's assume 
I happen to have a ham that my non-Jewish neighbor gave me as a gift. I'm not allowed to eat ham. But I'm allowed to feed it to my animals. And I'm even allowed to sell it. In other words, the normal rule of non-kosher food is don't eat it, but you're allowed, when I say sell it, because I don't mean sell it to a Jew, that, that you couldn't do because you're causing them to sin, but I mean sell it to a non-Jew. The normal rule of non-kosher food is don't eat it, but you can give it to your animal, or you can give it as a gift to a non-Jewish neighbor, or you can even sell it to a non-Jew. So that's called Osir Biachila. It's forbidden to eat. Mutar Bahana, but it is permitted to get benefit. Basar Bechalav is an exception to the rule. It's not the normal, it's an exception to the rule. That not only is there an Isser of eating, but there's even an Isser of getting benefit. Now, this raises some very fascinating questions with pet food. Let's assume you buy dog food and you buy uh, beef, dog food. It has beef in it. Or chicken, for that matter. Well, okay, well, chicken might be a little different. Let's say beef. I'll get the chicken shortly. Now, often, they, they prepare the dog food by cooking the beef in milk. No, that's uh, what it is, to get the calcium up. Now, if it be treif, I mean, obviously the meat is treif, but giving treif meat to my dog is not a problem. But giving basar b'chalav to my dog is a problem, right? So you sometimes have to check. The dog food, better to get all beef than beef mixed with milk because of basar b'chalav, right? So that's a unique thing. Now... There is one other thing, one other common issue, which has an issue hana'a as well as an issue of eating, and that's chametz on Pesach. Chametz on Pesach, not only are you not allowed to eat, but you're not allowed to get benefit, and indeed, if you owned it during Pesach, even after Pesach, mm. you're not allowed to get benefit. So maybe we'll talk about chametz a little later on. Today I want to talk about meat and milk. Okay. So, the reason why the Pasuk is repeated three times do not cook a kid, a goat, in its mother's milk is because there are three prohibitions. Don't cook it. Don't eat it. Don't get benefit. Okay. Now, here is something very, very surprising. Under Torah law, the Easter only applies to milk and meat that were cooked together. In other words, under Torah law, there is Torah law. There is absolutely nothing wrong with having a glass of milk with a hamburger. They weren't cooked together. And certainly under Torah law, there is no concept of waiting between meat and milk because obviously they were not cooked together. But not only am I saying under Torah law you didn't have to wait, under Torah law you could even have the meat and the milk simultaneously as long as they weren't, uh, as long as they weren't cooked. That's why the Torah says do not cook the goat in the mother's milk. So what happened in the course of time is the Chachamim in the Mishnah added restrictions and fences around the Torah in order to keep you away from the primary of error. Now again, I'm always a little reluctant to talk this way because sometimes people walk away with the impression, oh, it's only rabbinic, so we don't have to keep it. God forbid, that's not the case. The halacha is the halacha, and we are obligated to keep what the sages have enacted. But just for your own knowledge, it's important to know the layers here. So the oraisa, the Yisr of Basr B'chalav is only if the meat and the milk were cooked together. Meat Rabbanan, you are not allowed to have milk and meat together, like a glass of milk and a hamburger. And not only that, but Meat Rabbanan, they also gave us waiting periods. Now, once we get to the waiting periods, 
it then gets very complicated because on the waiting periods level, there are many, many different minhagim, without getting into all of the sources. Uh, and this is by this, by this I mean the waiting period between meat to dairy and perhaps the waiting period between dairy and meat. Let, let, let's look at both of them first. First, what is the waiting period between meat to dairy? So, the standard rule is six hours. That, uh, again, I'll, I'll mention all the ins and outs of this in a moment. But the standard official rule is if I eat meat, I should not eat dairy until six hours have passed. Now, six hours from when? From when I finished the meat. Now, this is important. Let's take it to Shabbos. Let's say you have a Shabbos meal. And it's a long meal. But you finished eating the meat part of the meal, 12.30, but you're continuing with desserts and everything else for another hour, and you didn't bench until 1.30. You don't have to wait six hours from 1.30, which would get you to 7.30. You just have to wait six hours from 12.30. In other words, it's whenever you stopped eating meat. Now that's six hours. That's the strictest view. The strictest view is six hours from the end of eating meat. Now, there are some variations. Some say five and a half hours plus a second is good enough. In other words, you're more than halfway in your sixth hour. Some say even a little bit in the sixth hour is good enough, which means five hours and three mi- one minute. Okay? So there are three minhagim of the six hours. Six full hours, five hours and 31 minutes, or five hours and one minute. Now, these are different minhagim. If you don't have a minhag, sorry to tell you, you, you really should do the... the uh, the full six hours. Now, in addition, there are some minhagim which don't even have six hours at all. Uh, some wait, the, the German minhag, the yeki minhag of, of religious German Jews is to wait three hours. And if you are from Holland, and occasionally my note gets Holland uh, girls. Are you from Holland? No, oh, one hour. Okay, it's one hour, that's right. Is one hour. Okay, so again, uh, one should keep, if you don't, unless you have a specific minuk of the other variety that you've gotten from your family, generally one should keep uh, six hours. Okay. Now, the point to keep in mind, though, is that all of these waiting periods are rabbinic because Doraisa, the Yisra of Basar B'chalav would only be if they would be cooked together. And obviously, if, I'm, if I had meat and I'm drinking milk or ice cream, they weren't cooked together. So it would not be a do-raisa-dika law. Now, so this is, what about the other way? What about if you first had dairy and then you eat meat? So what are the halachos here? So again, there are, there are actually many different minhagim, but, but, but the basic line is we are very, very lenient. And as a general rule, some people do wait an hour. Some people do absolutely do wait an hour, but many people are very, very lenient. They will have meat right away, but they will rinse their mouth and chew something parav, like bread. They'll chew a little piece of bread and rinse their mouth, and then they will be able to go to meat right away. But there's one gigantic, gigantic, gigantic exception, and that is, there is a rule that if something is called hard cheese, hard cheese, I'll, I'll talk about what that means, then you treat it like meat and you have to wait six hours until you have meat. Meaning hard cheese has the same waiting period. Hard cheese before meat has the same waiting period as meat to milk. So that's very critical. If you're eating hard cheese, you know, just like people say, I'm fleshik, right? So usually you don't you, you don't say you don't say I'm milchik because 
Milchik, you're a free person, right? You can do it, right? So no one's going to say, I'm Milchik. But when you have hard cheese, you're going to have to say, I'm Milchik, right? So the question is, what is hard cheese? So hard cheese is cheese that has been aged at least six months. And uh, it's, not, it's not soft, meaning if you got to bite it, you got to bite it hard so the pieces stick in your teeth and it's like, like meat. Which would mean that, let's take in Israel, most things like uh, American cheese or just the regular white, uh, yellow cheese, the yellow cheese, the white cheese, is Baderach Klau not called hard cheese? And you wouldn't have to wait six hours, although some rabbis in Israel are very strict. I mean, some rabbis do Pasuk, and the regular yellow cheese here is hard cheese. I don't understand that, because like, it makes no sense to me, because it isn't, but, but pe- some people are mocked, but I think you'd be allowed to be makel on it. On the other end, if you ever get a piece of um, Parmesan, ungrated Parmesan cheese, now that would be Gavino Kasha. Now, now, by my example, though, I want to point out that even things that are hard cheese, if they are grated, if they are melted, like in lasagna, so they wouldn't have the status anymore of hard cheese, and then you would not have to wait six hours. So, right? so if you take uh, a piece of that hard, hard cheese and you melt it down, then it no longer has the status of hard cheese, and you can be lenient, okay? As I say, some people are machmer, even with any, even with regular milchiks, they're going to wait an hour. But uh, the minhag is most people are not strict on that at all. So unless it's hard cheese, you don't have to worry about that. Okay? I guess. Okay. Alrighty. Chabad also waits for like capitalistic reasons for that hour. They oh Chabad what minhag do they do? They do wait a whole hour. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's based on the Zohar. The Zohar says. Although it's interesting, some say it doesn't have to be 60 minutes. The Zohar says one should not eat milk and dairy in the same hour. But let me explain what that means. There's a machlokas what that means. Some say that even if you had dairy first, you've got to wait 60 minutes. Others say it just can't be the same hour on the clock, which means the following. If I ate, let's say, uh, some cheese... At 2.55, I would be allowed to have meat at 3 o'clock. In other words, some say, as long as it's not the same hour, even though you didn't wait 60 minutes. So there's a machlokas, actually, how to learn the Zohar. Some wait 60 minutes, some just wait until the next clock hour. And as I say, many people are actually not machmer on this at all, so uh, you, know, you should follow whatever, whatever your minog is. Okay. So now, um, I want to introduce uh, a very, very important concept that applies. Oh, yes, one, one, other, one other thing about meat and milk before, and before I get into more general ideas. And that is, uh, the law of meat and milk does not apply to non-kosher meat, interestingly enough. I mean, let's imagine uh, you cooked some pork with milk. So obviously, the pork is forbidden to eat. But you didn't transgress basur b'chalav. So you only have... So number one, if you're a cook in a non-kosher restaurant, you're allowed to cook pork and milk because it doesn't have the avera of cooking it. And number two, if one ate it, they would only transgress the prohibition of chazer. They wouldn't have transgressed the prohibition of basur b'chalav. But... This is true only if it's a non-kosher species. But if it's a kosher species that's strafe, like uh, a nevela, let's say steak, non-kosher steak, then the laws of Basar B'chalav do apply. So there's a difference in halacha between what's called a behema tamea that we talked about versus a behema tahora that is uh, not kosher, Basar B'chalav does apply there. So uh, again, if you're a cook in a non-kosher restaurant, uh, you would not be allowed to cook even non-kosher beef with milk. That would be an issue of Basar B'chalav. Yeah. Um, why would it apply to poultry? Okay, so now let's get... Yeah, right, very good question. So now, let's now talk about uh, birds, poultry, chicken, turkey, duck, all of these things. So once again... Minatora, 
since the Torah describes don't cook a goat in its mother's milk, the Torah prohibition only applies if it's a mammal. In other words, uh, something that, uh, an animal that nurses from its mother. That would be called a mammal. Uh, now, a bird does not nurse. So under Torah law, Torah law, chicken and milk is permitted, even if you cook them together, kalvachomer, if you're just drinking them you know, separately, and the like. So the whole halacha of basor of b'chalav, that means chicken uh, and uh, milk, is a rabbinic law. Uh, and therefore, there's an interesting ramification of it, of it being a rabbinic law, and that is, it is mutter bahana. This is an interesting rule. Meaning, let's assume that I had inadvertently cooked chicken and milk. I'm not allowed to eat it, but I could sell it to a non-Jew or give it to my dog, because there's a very big klal in halacha that any basar b'chalav that is only prohibited rabbinically is only forbidden in eating, it is not forbidden in benefit. And therefore, basar of is forbidden to eat rabbinically 100%, and indeed we even wait six hours. We even wait six hours, but you would be allowed to uh, give it to a guy, sell it to a guy, or give it to your dog. So you are correct, it's, it's, it's an extension. So you see extraordinarily how strict the rabbis were. They took this narrow case of meat cooked in milk and they expanded it to all sorts of all sorts of parameters. Okay, so that's Basr B'chalav. So now I'm going to introduce some, some general concepts that apply to all aspects of Kashrus, including Basr B'chalav. And that is, there is a very, very important principle in the laws of Kashrus that is called Ta'am Ke'ikar. Ka'ikar. Tam ki'ikar means the taste of something is equivalent to its actualization. The taste of something forbidden is just as bad as the actual thing that's forbidden. And you'll see from the examples what we mean by this. This means that if a kosher food absorbs the taste of a non-kosher food, even though there's no physical non-kosher food in there, if it has the taste of the non-kosher food, it becomes non-kosher. This actually explains a very, very simple idea. Why do you need a kosher kitchen? Why do my pots have to be kosher? Right? I, go, I go home to my parents. My parents don't keep kashras. So, okay, I can't eat the treif meat. Why can't, I, why can't I use a non-kosher pot to make kosher food? Like, what's the problem? The answer is, Tom Kieker. How does that work? That when you cook non-kosher food in a pot, or you stir it with a spoon, or a fork, or a spatula. It absorbs the taste inside of the metal. It absorbs the taste of the non-kosher food. When you then cook kosher food in the pot, the taste that is absorbed in the walls of the pot, or the taste that is absorbed in the fork, or the spoon, or the spatula, comes out into the kosher product. So even though there's no physical non-kosher thing that you see, this is called tam, the taste that was absorbed, that then comes out, ke'ikar is just as bad as the original. That is why, again, I'm, I'll, I'll give you many exceptions to this in a minute, but that is why you generally do not use non-kosher pots, pans, plates, forks, knives, cutlery, because they absorbed taste from the non-kosher food. 
And when they absorb the taste from the non-kosher food, they impart it, or they could impart it, to the kosher food. So the kosher food now contains a taste of the non-kosher food. So you're not allowed to do that. Now this is called Tom Ki'ikar. And there are really two proofs from the Chumash that there is such a principle called Tom Ki'ikar. Proof number one is from Basar B'chalav itself. The Torah tells me, if I cook meat in milk, I'm not allowed to eat the resulting product. Now let's think about that. I understand why I can't eat the meat because the meat absorbs some of the milk. The milk is real. But why can't I eat the milk? I cooked meat in milk. I take out the meat. All I see is milk. I don't see any meat in that milk. So why can't I eat the milk? Or drink the milk? Answer, because even though you don't see any meat, the meat imparted a taste into the milk. And the taste is as bad as the actual meat. So Tom Ki'ikar can be proven not from the meat absorbing the milk, because that's mamashut, that's, you know, it absorbed milk, but from the milk being forbidden because it has the taste of the meat. That's one proof. Another proof is from the last war that is recorded in the Torah. If you remember, the very last war in the Torah before Moshe Rabbeinu dies, is a war against the Midianites. And in the war against the Midianites, God gave us the laws of koshering, that when we take (coughs) pots and pans, we got to purge them, put them in boiling water or use fire. This is called koshering. Now, why do you have to kosher? In other words, the reason I kosher is to get rid of whatever taste was inside implying, in other words, if you didn't get rid of the taste, you might make your food forbidden. So the fact that they had to kosher, all the laws of koshering are in the Torah, and we'll talk about koshering uh, shortly, that proves Tom Kikita, right? So uh, everyone understands the basic translation of the term Tom Kikar, and that is why you cannot use non-kosher pots, non-kosher ovens, all of these different things, because of the transfer of non-kosher taste into the food. Um, if you have a blast and you put like yeah. tinfoil, tinfoil things on top of it, is that food? Like, let's say, like one is dairy and then the next is is a meat. Tinfoil, you know, tinfoil? Yeah. So, so I'll, I'll talk about this okay. because because there are a lot of different ways that it's transferred. Yeah. Um, okay. So I have two questions about this. With the taste. That being the case, why do kosher brands come out with like fake bacon, like smoked meat, bacon-tasting products? Well, you're, you're, raising a, you're raising a different issue because uh, things like fake bacon is totally kosher. I mean, it, 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 right? It, taste, like, it can taste so Oh, okay, okay. okay. I, I, I hear what you're saying. Okay, so, I, so maybe I misspoke a little bit. I, I didn't mean to say, okay, I, I didn't mean to say anything that tastes like treif is treif. I meant any taste that comes from treif is treif. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm glad uh, I could correct that. Meaning fake tastes of treif food as totally kosher. Now, you could argue it's not a good thing to do, it'll confuse people, but that's not this principle. This principle means the taste of something that's actually treif is as bad as the actual treif. Understand. And then my other yeah. question yeah. is this was, so I understand how like pots, pans, cooking, and heat that transfers. Yep. What if it's like, um, I know we're probably going to answer this, but it's just a cutting board. Okay, I will get to that. Okay, so now the critical issue becomes how does taste get transferred? Meaning the whole predicate of these laws of kashras is that somehow the non-kosher taste gets absorbed into something like a pot or a, a, a stovetop or something, and then it comes out, right? So what causes transfer of taste? So here, rule number one, which is very, very important, is that in most cases, most cases, not all cases, and I'll get to the exceptions, it is heat 
that affects a transfer. In the absence of heat, there is no transfer. Now, what do we mean by heat? How hot is hot? So it's actually not that hot. Uh, the shear, the shear meaning the, the measure for what is called heat for purposes of transfer is the same as the laws of cooking for Shabbos. And that is a, a, a shear that our Chachamim called Yad Soledes Bo, which is a term that means hot enough because it doesn't give you a temperature, it just gives you a, a measuring stick, that if your hands were to touch it, it would pull back. That's so lettuce bow. Right? That's heat. How much is that? Right? To different people. Some people can stick their hand in a fire and uh, nothing happens. So it's estimated between 110 degrees Fahrenheit or 115. It's better to be strict at 110. So 110, it's not, that's not boiling. Boiling is 212, right? 110 just means you would be a little uncomfortable to keep your, your, keep your hand there. So that means in the absence of heat, that's at least 110 degrees, there is no transfer. So now let's take a few examples. Simple example. Let's imagine that I took a bowl from somebody's kitchen and I didn't know it was a fleshic bowl. I, I didn't know that they use it for soup, meats and soup and everything else. And I filled it up with milk and cereal. Right, so I ate milk and cereal in a fleshic bowl. So the question is, did I make the bowl trafe? Did I make the milk and cereal trafe? The answer is no. Because even if the bowl did absorb meat taste, because it was, let's say, let's say you put hot soup in it. But in order for that meat taste to go into the milk, there has to be heat. If there's no heat, then whatever is in the clay did not come out. Similarly, in order for the milk to get into the, the bowl, there would have to be heat. So the fleshic bowl did not absorb milk, and the milk did not absorb fleshic taste. Therefore, the milk in the cereal you can eat, and the bowl remains a, a meat bowl, a fleshic bowl, and it's not affected in any way. Now, here though, there's a little hidden trick that you, know, you can get yourself trapped. Let's assume that you feel so guilty, right? You heard that, you know, you discover, hey, I used their fleshic bowl and you're determined to scour out that bowl, so you turn on the boiling hot water faucet to clean out every residue of milk. Now you think you did a great thing. Uh-uh, you did a bad thing, because now that you put boiling hot water in a bowl that contained <laughs> drops of milk, you've caused the bowl to absorb that milk. So now, it's a bowl that has meat and milk in it. It's now a trafe bowl, because it has meat and milk, so you can't use it. Well, you can use it for cold cereal, <laughs> indeed. But you couldn't use it for anything hot, because what will come out is the taste of meat and milk. See? So it's very important that whenever you use cold dairy in a meat bowl, or you use cold meat, let's say cold marinara sauce or something, in a dairy bowl, you clean it out thoroughly with cold water, and only after you see there's no visible residue, you can then clean it with hot water. But do not clean it with hot water till after you've cleaned it with cold water. Because if you clean it with hot water first, you're actually making it trafe when it wasn't, when it wasn't trafe. Okay, that's kind of a hidden mistake that people sometimes make. So this is very important, that heat is the medium of transfer, right? So that's principle number one, but I'll get to some exceptions about that. So that's heat. Principle number two is what's called ben yomo versus not ben yomo. Ben yomo, these are two words, ben yomo, or no ben yomo, Ben Yomo means within its first day. 
and that refers to a rule that it was used with either treif or with the other meat or milk within 24 hours. Let, let me explain with this. I'm sure you've heard over the years there's some magical spell about 24 hours. So let me just explain what, what that is. Chazal had a Mesorah based on their understanding of, of nature that whatever taste a utensil absorbs becomes rancid after 24 hours from the time it was absorbed. And once it's a rancid taste, it no longer has the status of a food. Which means the following. So if it absorbed it within 24 hours, that's called Ben Yoma. If it absorbed it more than 24 hours, that's called Eino Ben Yoma. So now, let's examine how this would work with milk and meat. The first example I gave you was you put cold milk in a fleshic bowl, right? And there, there's no problem because cold milk does not draw out the fleshic taste. But let's assume that you're using heat here. Let's assume that I took a fleshic bowl and I made a milchic oatmeal in the fleshic bowl, meaning to say I made oatmeal and I, you know, put in milk and butter. Now I have heat. So the question becomes, well, two questions really. Can I eat the oatmeal? Because the oatmeal draw out, drew out the fleshic taste. So now I have the taste of meat in a milchic concoction. Meat and milk. So here's the answer. It depends when hot meat was put into the bowl. When did, it, when, was it, when did it have its last absorption of meat? If it absorbed meat within the preceding 24 hours, the taste of the meat is considered to be fresh and good, and now I'm in trouble because that fresh meat taste went into the dairy oatmeal, creating milk and meat. I'm not allowed to eat milk and meat together. If, however, it's been more than 24 hours since meat was cooked in that bowl, or hot meat was in that bowl, then whatever that bowl absorbed is halakhically considered rancid and inedible, and therefore, although the heat draws out the meat taste into the oatmeal because in and of itself it's not an edible taste. I mean, even if you wouldn't notice it, but it's not an edible taste, the oatmeal remains dairy and you are permitted to eat the oatmeal, which means the oatmeal is forbidden, to use the Hebrew phrase, if, it is, if the, if the uh, bowl is a ben-yomo, I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's forbidden if it's a ben-yomo and the oatmeal is permitted if the bowl is an eno ben-yomo. And this applies to pots as well. And it's not just bowls. Let's say a pot, a pot. A not, in fact, it applies not only to meat and milk, it applies to non-kosher pots. Let, let's imagine it's a non-kosher kitchen. So it's not only a question of meat and milk. Let's imagine they cook pork in the pot, treif in the pot. And you cook kosher food in a treif pot. So again, I, I want to emphasize, this is not only milk, meat, milk, and uh, meat, milk. This is even treif kosher. If it was more than 24 hours since that non-kosher pot absorbed meat, non-kosher meat, that's called a defective taste, and it doesn't dasher. The taste that comes into my food does not prohibit my food, whether it's meat to milk, milk to meat, or treif to kosher. And that's even when there's heat. If there's no heat, it wouldn't answer anyway. Now, one might ask a question, so wait a second here. So, why bother koshering a kitchen at all? <laughs> Meaning, Right, I go to a kitchen, everything is treif. Let's assume I'm a baltshuga, right? So, I, so all my pots and pans are treif. Okay, 
But if I wait 24 hours from the last use, then there's no problem. By the way, uh, uh, the, 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 the rule, just the language here. An eno ben yomo, right, a pot that had not been used with tray for more than 24 hours, is called nosein tam lifagam. It imparts a taste that is defective. Nosein tam lifagam. So, Poskim will use it like interchangeably. Sometimes they'll, they'll call the heter the heter of Eno ben Yomo. And sometimes they'll call the heter Nosein Tam Lif Gum. They, they mean the same thing. In other words, Eno ben Yomo just means the pot was not used for 24 hours. And Nosein Tam Lif Gum means the taste it imparts is defective. So it's just expressing the idea in two different ways. But when you see those expressions in terms of halacha, they're synonymous expressions. So the question is still becomes, so why, 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 why do you have to kasher a kitchen, really? Just wait 24 hours. The answer is, here's the thing about Eino Ben Yoma. L'chatchila, meaning the way you're supposed to behave in the first instance, you're not supposed to use an Eino Ben Yoma, meaning you're not allowed to use non-kosher pots, non-kosher cutlery. Uh, you're, not, you're not allowed to use them. If you, and that's why we kosher. But if you did use them, or someone made food for you, you're allowed to eat the food. Right? So this is an interesting rule about uh, eating, let's say, let's, let's assume that somebody's parents don't keep kosher. So it's interesting I would not be allowed to use those pots for the preparation of food. And that's why I would try to get them koshered. But if mom made me something in those pots, I would be allowed to eat them, as long as I didn't tell her to make it in those pots and, and, and the like. Because assuming, assuming, assuming they're not Ben Yoma, whatever trafe is in the pot is no St. Tom Again, there's going to be exceptions. I, I, I obviously I can't go over. I'll go over some exceptions just because you need to know some exceptions. But uh, you know, don't uh, take everything I say to be put into practice because there are more qualifications. But I, I want you to get an understanding of the system. Yeah. Yeah. What about the idea of like mikvid? Like if they haven't been mikvid. Oh, okay. So let's let's talk about that. I'll, I'll, that's a Let me talk about that a little bit. That is, there's another rule that people have to be aware of. I'm sure you're aware of it. Uh, and that is the notion that utensils that are used in either food preparation or food consumption, so whether it's a pot or whether it's plate or cutlery, uh, if they were ever owned by a non-Jew, like they went, you know, your parents bought them in a store or whatever it is, so they cannot be used for food preparation or food eating until they're immersed in a mikvah. Now, this is not a kashrus rule, meaning this is not because they absorbed tray food. Even if they're 100% new and they were never used at all, there's an obligation of being tovel. Okay, it's not a kashrus thing. And in fact, if they were tray, taking them to the mikvah wouldn't be enough. You'd have to kasher them. I mean, taking them to the mikvah is not kashering them. Cashing them requires boiling water and blow torches and everything else. Now, what types of things do you have to be tovel? Only if it's metal or glass. So you don't have to be tovel wood. You don't, most say you don't have to be tovel plastic. It's metal or glass. Yeah, oh yes, you have to be tovel glass, that, that's for sure. Now, so the question that you're raising is, that even if all of my parents' pots are not Ben Yomo, or even if they're kosher, but they weren't taken to a mikvah, how can I uh, eat if the kalim were not tovelt? Right, that's your question. Yeah, so here uh, I do have good news to you. Again, some people are machmer. I, I, I'm not going to deny it. But Rosh Shlomo Zalman Orbach Paskins, that the rule that you're not allowed to use the pots and the pans and the dishes until they're immersed in the mikvah 
is a punishment only on the owner of them that has the obligation to take him to the mikvah. But it does not apply to a guest, including a child. So if I'm visiting my parents, it's my parents' problem that they weren't told over the dishes. It's technically not my problem. Now, of course, you'd be doing a great mitzvah if you're told the dishes for them. But in terms of restricting you from eating on those dishes, you are not restricted. Right? So as a result... Uh, if you have a concern that your parents' dishes were not toveled, now again, if you can tovel it for them, go ahead and do it. Uh, that's a great thing. But if, assuming you're not able to be tovel, you don't have to worry about eating from those dishes. Okay? And again, it only applies to glass or metal. Uh, now, glazed china is very interesting because china itself is earthenware. Earthenware does not have to be toveled, but it's glazed with a glass glaze. So as a result, we are toveled china without a bracha, because it's some question. And the same thing with a lot of mugs. If you have a, what's called a stoneware mug, you don't have to be tovel. But a lot of mugs have a, you can tell really, if it has a shiny, if it has a sheen, that actually means there's a glass coating on it. So those types of mugs that have a glass glaze, you would be tovel without a bracha. Or the best thing to do is tovel it along with something metal. So when you, uh, make, so when you make a bracha on the metal thing, it's going to cover the, uh, the mug. Yeah. Um, going back to the example of like you make a dairy oatmeal, like a hot dairy oatmeal in like a flaschic bowl. Yeah. Um, so if it was like an Ano Vanilla situation, yeah. Like what's the status of the bowl? Oh, excellent. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah I was going to mention that, and I didn't. So again, let's go back to that example. Uh, the 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 uh, the bowl is flaschic, but it's Ano Benyomo. And I made a dairy oatmeal in the Eino Ben Yomo, so the Psak is very clear that the dairy oatmeal is allowed to be eaten because whatever taste went into the, uh, went into the dairy oatmeal is treated as a rancid taste, and I'm allowed to eat it. Even though I wasn't allowed to make the... Remember, so I wasn't allowed to make the oatmeal in the bowl, but I'm allowed to eat the oatmeal if it was done. Now, the question now becomes, which I didn't answer, is, okay... So the oatmeal is fine. What about the bowl? The bowl was fleshic, and now it absorbed milchit. So uh, here, uh, you're, you're 100% right. The bowl is unfortunately treif. Since the bowl is now absorbed both of meat and of milk, you're not allowed to use it at all. And even though the meat is eno benyomo, so if you used it, in other words, it would be like, the, if I used it for oatmeal the second time, the oatmeal would be kosher but I'm not allowed to use it. So essentially, I have to put it away or kosher, or kosher it. Uh, yeah, very good point. Yeah. Um, if it is a meat vessel that's been used within the time period of 24 hours, yeah. but you use something that's hot that isn't dairy, does that hot food now become meat, the status of meat? Yes, okay, so I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to get to that because that's the question of parif. In other words, I'm going to get to that. It's a very, very important area. So far, I've just been talking about Milk and meat, milk and meat, meat and milk. I didn't talk about parav stuff that you cook in these utensils. Okay, I, I will get to that in, 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 a, in a moment. Okay, so now let's talk about exactly, that's where we're up to, exactly what you just raised. Uh, I was, until now, I've been talking about dairy oatmeal in a fleshic pot or a meat marinara sauce in a milchic pot or a milchic bowl. Uh, let's, now, let's talk about parv stuff, because this, this is a biggie. Let's imagine you cook a pasta, parv spaghetti, in a pot that's fleshic. Right? The, in other words, the pot had meat cooked in it before, but there's no meat cooked right now. You cook something parv. Or you uh, bake a potato in a, serve, in a tray that you have cooked meat in and the like. So what, what is the status? So here we have a very interesting rule that applies only to meat and milk. It does not apply to treif. And this talks about second generation taste, meaning what, what happens here? What happens here is that when I cooked meat in the pot, the pot absorbed the meat taste. 
That's a first-generation taste. When I cook a potato or I cook pasta in the pot, it absorbs a second-generation taste. Now, this is, a, this is going to be a little complicated. So this actually has a name. This is called No Saint Tom Bar No Saint Tom. That means receiving a taste, which is the son of receiving a taste. Meaning, second generation taste. Now, in fact, we even have an abbreviation. We call it not bar not. Right? So if you, want to, if you really want to impress, if you really, really want to impress uh, someone you're dating who's in yeshiva, uh, you can ask him questions about not bar not. And I'm sure he'll be absolutely amazed. If he knows what it is. Maybe, maybe he, might not, <laughs> he may not know what it is. But okay, then he'll be even more amazed. Okay? <laughs> Not by not. See, see how it is. Not by no Saint Tom. Not no Saint Tom. Then no Saint Tom. So the rule of not by not. So first, let me tell you what Sfardim say because they say it a simpler way. Ashkenazim always make things a little more complicated. The Sfardim say not by not on a part of thing has no meat and milk restrictions whatsoever. So according to Spartan, this is even if it's a Ben Yoma. If you cooked, if you baked a potato or cooked pasta in a fleshic pot, even if the fleshic pot is Ben Yoma, that pasta can then be mixed with cheese not in the fleshic pot, but in a, in a separate thing. You certainly don't have to wait six hours, but, but, you, but you, don't, you, you can eat it mamish with, 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 with the cheese directly because it is a second-generation taste, meaning unlike the case where I cook the dairy oatmeal in a fleshic pot and it's a benyomo, there... Well, that's also a second-generation taste, but it's a second-generation taste that becomes straight because the second-generation taste hits the, hits the dairy. But in a case where the second-generation taste was generated and it was not yet prohibited because when I cook the pasta, the pasta is not forbidden at all. At that point, it loses the status of, of milchik or in this case, loses, loses the status of flagic, and you can have it with milk. Okay, it's subtle. Let, 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 let's, see, let's be sure you understand the difference here. If I cook milchic oatmeal in a flagic pot that's ben yomo, the milchic oatmeal is forbidden. That's for sure. If I cook pasta, par of pasta, in an Aino, I'm sorry, in a fleshic pot that's a Ben Yomo, according to Svardim, that pasta can be mixed with milchiks and even eaten with milchiks. So think about those two examples. Again, I'll get to Ashkenazim in a moment. They make things a little complicated. Think of those two examples and let's ask ourselves what's the difference. In both cases, you're talking about the fleshic taste that was absorbed in the pot coming out. So the difference is, when it comes out, does it come out as a prohibited thing or does it come out as a permissible thing? Meaning to say, in the case of the milchic oatmeal that you cook in the fleshic pot that's benyoma, as soon as that second taste comes out, it hits the milchic. So it becomes prohibited. That's called not by not de isura. Second generation taste that's immediately forbidden. Masha'en came when you cook the pasta in the fleshic pot. It's a second generation fleshic taste that's still permissible to eat. So if it's a not by not, which is in a state of permissibility, 
you're allowed to, it, it no longer has the laws of Basar B'chaz. Now, this would not apply to any other treif. If it was Chaz or anything else, even if it's you know, 10 generations removed, it remains forbidden. But this is a special rule for Basar B'chalaf. Now, this is what Svartim says. So Svartim basically say, not by not lahetera. So I hope I can, I can use these Hebrew phrases and uh, if there's any having trouble computing them, just uh, raise your hands. According to Svartim, not by not by not lehetera, permissible not by not, has no basur b'chalav implications whatsoever, even though the pot is a ben yoma. Ben yoma. Now Ashkenazim, the Ramah, is a little stricter in the following way. It's more of a composite. He says. Not by not lahetera, meaning let's take the pasta. I cooked pasta in a fleshic pot. That's a ben yoma. So the Ramah says, I'm not supposed to mix it with cheese, and I'm not supposed to drink milk with it, but. I don't have to wait six hours, meaning as soon as I finish the pasta, I can then have dairy right away. So it's a little bit of a composite, meaning Svartim are more logical here. Svartim basically say it's not meat and milk. The Ramah says, well, in some ways we're machmir, in some ways we're mekel. We're machmir that you shouldn't mix it with cheese. And we're also machmer, you shouldn't have dairy while you're eating it. But we do not require any type of waiting period at all. So you do not have to wait six hours. And then the Ramah adds that this chumrah is only if it is a ben yomo. If the fleshic pot is an eno ben yomo, then then everything is mutter. In other words, if I cooked pasta in a fleshic pot that's eno ben yomo, I could even mix the pasta with, with cheese. There'd be no problem at all. Okay? So this chumra of not by not is only by a ben yomo. It's not by an eno ben yomo. Sfardim would be mekel even on ben yomo that there's no laws of basrach. Okay? I, 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 that's kind of, I thought that answered your question, right? Can you do that? Yeah. Oh, Okay. So the Ramah says that, uh, he also adds, that lechatchila, you're not supposed to cook it with that intention, meaning you're not supposed to cook the pasta with the intention of eating it with, with the cheese, right? And that's true even by an Eino Ben Yom, lechatchila, you're not supposed to do that. Okay? So uh, there's a lot of stuff here. I know it's, it's kind of very, very dense, but I hope you see the, uh, the idea here. Not by not, no sentam mufkam, all of these different uh, laws, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Could you have a glass of milk? So, so the, it seems to be not. It seems you have to wait. You should not consume the pasta with, uh, with a glass of milk while you're eating it. So you finish the pasta, then you can have the milk. You need to say bracha, like... Yeah, so it's you don't even need to say an after bracha. Just don't eat the... Like, I finished my pasta, like, okay, I can... Yeah, it seems to be that that would be okay. Yeah, that would be all right, okay? But the one thing you can't, you can't mix it with the cheese directly. Yeah. Uh, Okay, wait, two quick questions. Actually, this one. Why can't you mix fish and meat? Uh, Because that's the... Okay, very, very excellent question. So now we have some peripheral things which touch on all of this, but they're very, very different. Uh, the Torah prohibits the mixing of milk and meat, right? The Torah certainly does not prohibit the mixing of fish and meat. So it has, that has nothing to do with meat and milk at all. But uh, the Chachamim said, for reasons we're not really sure, that eating fish and meat together uh, is something that is dangerous. Now, it's a sakana, it's called a danger. Now, what is the danger? We still don't know for sure. Are the Chachamim identifying a medical danger, of which we don't know what that is? Or is this a spiritual danger for some reason? But uh, it is an union of Sakana. Now, the way we get around that is, we don't wait six hours, we don't have to wait six hours, but as you know, in a Shabbos table, uh, 
you have a separate fork and plate for fish, right? If you have to filter fish, and after the, that you remove it, and that's the, of course, Hasidim always look for an excuse to drink a little bit, uh, but that's the excuse of drinking some, uh, some schnapps, some, some liquor, or some vodka or something, to clear the palate and eat a little bit of bread. That is because of sakana. Now, what's interesting is the following. Some people are so strict on sakana that they will not even allow meat to be cooked in a fish pot. And like, what's the halacha? In other words, we talked about, you know, not cooking meat in a dairy pot and not cooking dairy in a meat pot. What about cooking meat in a fish pot or cooking fish in a, in a, in a, uh, in a meat pot? Anything wrong with that? So some say, well, the sakana of meat and fish is only if you actually mix actual particles of meat and fish, but not about a taste that's in a clay. So we actually paskin that, uh, according to the strict halacha, there is nothing wrong with meat cooked in a fish pot or fish cooked in a meat pot, as long as you actually don't have particles of fish and meat together. But some people are very strict. Some people are strict, and they will only eat fish if it was cooked in a either a parv pot or a dedicated fish pot. They will not allow it to be cooked in a uh, fleshic pot. Now, some svardim are machmir, that the same way you don't have fish and meat, they don't have milk and fish. In other words, they consider anything that comes from meat, including milk, as injurious with fish. So they would not have uh, butter or milk or cream with any type of fish. That's a chumrah. Most Ashkenazim do not follow that chumrah, and they don't have a problem of milk and fish. They only have a problem of meat and fish, and even then, only actual milk, uh, meat and fish, not the balua, not what is absorbed in a pot. But as I say, you will encounter over the years different levels of observances here. Some people are going to be very, 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 very strict uh, on, on this. So that, but that's, as I say, that's not a kashris issue per se. That is an issue of sakana. It's called a danger, and we still don't know exactly what the danger is. It may be a mystical, spiritual danger that we don't fully, uh, fully understand. By the way, the same thing is true for another halacha. That's, uh, the Shulchan Aruch does not bring it, interestingly enough. It's not in the Shulchan Aruch, but many people follow it, and it's in the Gemara. And I'm sure you've heard this, because people are, for some reason, people are very machmer in this, although it's not in the Shulchan Aruch, about eggs and onions that have been left overnight. Have you heard about of, of this? Uh, the Gemara says the following. If you have peeled eggs, meaning a hard-boiled egg that's peeled, or an onion that is peeled, you've re- you remove the outer peel of an onion, and it was left overnight, it was left overnight in a peeled state. So the Gemara says it is a sakana to eat the onions or the eggs that were left overnight in an unpeeled state. Now, I'm sorry, sorry, in a peeled state. No, if it's unpeeled, actually, it's, it's fine. But if it's peeled, a peeled state. Now, once again, we're not really sure what, what sakana are we talking about here? What, what, is, what is exactly dangerous about this? But still, Chazal say not to do it. So that does create a lot of problems, uh, not so much with, well, number one, those who are strict will even apply it in, in the refrigerator. Even if it was left in the refrigerator, they won't do it. But this raises a whole problem with something like egg salad. I mean, let's imagine you have egg salad. You made egg salad, uh, right? So does that mean, I mean, egg salad are peeled eggs, obviously, that were chopped up. So does that mean if I left my egg salad overnight, because there was something left over, I can't eat the egg salad or the onions in the egg salad if there's onions. So here you have to know that there, is, there are some general heterim here and how they apply you should, you know, ask the Rebbitsons because every Rebbitson has their own Masora on this. And that is, many say that if there is oil or mayonnaise added to the egg or the onion, that will somehow negate the sakana. So with something like egg salad, you don't have a problem, right? And even with onions, if you have chopped onions, which obviously were peeled, 
that you're going to leave overnight, just pour some olive oil on them, and that will or lemon juice, lemon juice as well, whichever you prefer, uh, and that will allow you to to keep them. Okay. So uh, now again, the strange thing about this is the statement that it's a sakana is in the Gemara. It's in the Gemara. The Gemara says it. But the Shulchan Aruch does not bring it, meaning the Shulchan Aruch does not bring everything in the Gemara. And if the Shulchan Aruch does not bring it, that would normally mean that we don't have to follow it halachically. And yet, uh, the minog of Klal Yisrael, is, this is a very widespread minog. I mean, I'm sure you, you, you may have seen it. Uh, many, many people do follow it, and uh, you know, the Kashrus organizations warn you about it. Uh, and, and, and the like. So again, these are Sakana rules though. This is not a Kashrus issue per se, this is a Sakana rule. Yeah? Um, I have a question related to what we were just speaking about, like cooking something hard in the meat. What if it's on a grill? Because you know how you can get like, like things in the grill fall? Yes. You know what I'm about? Like you cook meat on a grill and then you want to cook vegetables on the grill and you're not. Yeah, yeah. So there, there, the, the problem might be a little worse because you still have pieces of meat. It's, di- it's different than just something absorbed there. On the other hand, uh, the thing is, it really depends because um, if things fall onto the coals and they get so charred that they're like charcoal, then they don't, they don't impart any taste at that point. So it really would depend. But if you're talking about a good piece of meat that's still generating taste... Um, that's very different. That's not even a knock by knock. That's not a second generation taste. That's a first generation taste. You understand this? If parav, if something parav, if you cook a potato with a piece of meat, you don't have any heter of eating it with milk because that's not a second generation taste. That's a first generation taste, you see? So that's a very important distinction. Uh, there's a big difference between cooking pasta in a fleshic pot versus cooking pasta with meat, and you then take away the meat, but the pasta absorbed the ac- actual taste of the meat. There you certainly have to treat it as fleshic. Okay? Okay, so as I say, I, uh, I apologize for being overly complicated, but I hope uh, maybe this makes a little, a little sense to you. Yeah? Can I ask a quick question? Yeah? If I'm at the house for Travis, yeah. and the host cooks potatoes in one dish and chicken in another, and I don't eat the chicken, but I eat the potatoes. You know, so it really depends on how they did it. Exactly this. If they cooked the potatoes with the chicken, you are fleshing. If they cooked the potatoes separately, even if they used a fleshing pot that's a benyomo, then, according to Svardim, you're, you're totally not fleshic. According to Ashkenazim, you're, you're limited fleshic that you can't have milk at the meal, which you're not going to have anyway, but you don't have to wait six hours. Even if they're in the oven at the same time? Oh, okay. Uh, in other words, if it was two different dishes, uh, even if it's the... Uh, it would be complicated, but I, I would say even if they were in the oven at the same time, it does not become fleshic uh, alone. Meaning, um, it, you would apply the rules of not by not in that case. Yeah. Can I ask a question about fish and meat? Uh, yeah. Okay. Are you allowed to put them at, into the oven at the same time? 